The Human Resource Department of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is pleased to present a Leadership Enrichment Series. This Enrichment Series is provided as a development opportunity for leaders and potential leaders within church employment. The following views presented are those of the presenters and participants and not those of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Ralph Christensen, Managing Director of Human Resources, and it's a privilege to welcome you here to this, uh, this session, this leadership enrichment session, which we've entitled A Conversation on Leadership with Elder David A. Bednar. Elder Bednar, it's a delight to have you here. We appreciate your uh, willingness to come and, and instruct us and to engage with us in a bit of a conversation on some important topics on uh, leadership. I want to acknowledge also Sister Bednar, who's here with us. Uh, it's a delight to have you uh, here with us as well. Uh, I've asked David Frischneck, Managing Director of Curriculum, if he would offer an opening prayer, and then I'll have a few comments before turning some time to Elder Bednar. Just a comment or two about the Leadership Enrichment Series. This series is basically a newly, very newly created forum uh, that our intent is will uh, be conducted about quarterly. And it's an opportunity to bring together leaders of employees in the church and the affiliates of the church to come together and have an opportunity to ponder together and think together and to develop new skills and new insights into this incredible responsibility that we have as leaders of employees and missionaries and volunteers who are engaged in the purposes and the work of the church. And so uh, we're appreciative that you're here, and we think that this is going to be an ongoing forum that will be a great benefit to us. Uh, I'd like to, if I can, uh, share one quick scripture. This has been a scripture that I've thought a lot about in the four years that I've been here in this assignment, and in some ways has become sort of my guiding light on human resource and development issues. It comes from the 82nd section of the Doctrine and Covenants and is speaking about uh, the, the law of consecration. And the Lord teaches us this. And all of this for the benefit of the church of the living God, that every man may improve upon his talent, that every man may gain other talents, yea, even an hundredfold, to be cast into the Lord's storehouse to become the common property of the whole church. Now, I've come to just love that metaphor of us building our talents, and not just a little bit. You know, he says, build them a hundredfold, and then what do we do with them? We cast them into the storehouse of the Lord, and very unlike the world, where we would use our talents for our gain and for our benefit, we we cast them into the storehouse of the Lord, frankly, to be used if, when, and how the Lord may choose. Our responsibility is simply to make sure that the storehouse is full. I think that that's really what sessions like this uh, are all about, is the opportunity for us to build new talents, to cast them into the storehouse, that when the Lord needs something from us, uh, there's more there tomorrow uh, than there was uh, yesterday. Now, what I'd like to do is introduce, if I, if I might, <clears throat> something that we call the leadership pattern. In the spirit of that scripture, I had opportunity over the last uh, year to spend time in the Human Resource Committee with the First Presidency of the Church talking about leadership. And one of the points that they raised to me was they said, Ralph, uh, we want to invest in the development of our leaders and their talents, but we need to make sure we understand what we're shooting for. You know, what kind of leader is it that we want at the church? And so I had opportunity to spend time with the First Presidency, uh, with Elder Bednar, Elder Christofferson, Elder Hales of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, Bishop Burton, and and just had a wonderful conversation with each of these brethren, asking the question, 
what kind of leaders do we need in the church going forward uh, based on the, on the work that, that you know that we have? And the thing that was fascinating to me was how common the, the uh, responses were. And, and from the inf- information input that we got from these good brethren, this was a, what we call leadership pattern that we put together. And I just want to talk it through a little bit uh, to begin to describe what kind of leaders we're looking for. At the very center, in every one of these conversations, they said, we're looking for leaders who can lead as the Savior would. That sets us apart immediately from anything that we would see in the world. At the top of this pattern, we're looking for leaders who are able to act under the direction of the Spirit. Every one of these brethren instructed us that we need leaders who are confident in seeking the same spirit of revelation that the brethren speak, fully expecting to receive it, able to receive it, and then to apply that direction in the work that they do. They were also very consistent in saying we need leaders who are able to align everything they do with the brethren. Uh, very consistent message. And then as we went and we studied further the things that we heard from these brethren, they seemed to identify six basic types of work that leaders need to do. And you can see them up here, to define direction, to organize work, to counsel together, to build capability, to accomplish work, get things done, uh, and then to render an accounting of the things that we do. And so this has become what we're calling the leadership pattern. Now, as we, again, study the input that we got from these brethren, the, the more we looked at it, we said there really are sort of two different dimensions of these six areas of this leadership pattern. Uh, and I know you can't read this, you're not intended to necessarily, but one, one dimension of each of those six is what we call uh, leadership principles. And these are gospel-based principles about how we define direction, organize work, counsel together. But they're, they're comments that we receive from the brethren that are based in the doctrine and the principles of the gospel on how to do those things. And once again, that sets us apart from the world. But at the same time, we recognize, in addition to those gospel principles, there are a certain set of practices that anybody to be successful in a large, complex, global organization such as this one need to be good at. Um, Technology, finance, management, operations, uh, etc. And we said what we really need is leaders who are good at both dimensions. That it's not enough to simply have someone who is deeply spiritual, although absolutely essential, but knows nothing about finance or technology or the operations of the work. Nor is it enough to have an expert in the operations or finance or technology and not be deeply grounded. Frankly, the leaders that we are looking for are leaders who are really comfortable and good and experienced at both of these dimensions. And so over time, you're going to become more familiar with this leadership pattern. I wanted to just take opportunity in this session to introduce it to you. It's going to become sort of the basis of the development work that we do for leaders uh, going forward. With that, what I'd like to do is, is just talk a little bit about the format of this afternoon's conversation. As Elder Bednar and I talked about this, he said, Ralph, I don't want this to just be an ordinary talk, uh, which he would be marvelous at. But as we talked, we said, why don't we just highlight a handful of questions that are some of the hard questions that all of us as leaders struggle with and think about. Let me pose those questions to Elder Bednar and and have him respond to those. And so uh, I've spent some time just thinking about in my four years, what are some of the interesting and sometimes really hard, challenging questions that, uh, that we struggle with. And so the format of this will be that I'm going to pose those questions one at a time to Elder Bednar, and we'll have opportunity for him to uh, talk uh, about his thoughts and uh, to those. At the conclusion, 
of the uh, of probably five or so questions. Uh, we'll open it up for questions uh, from you or comments from you. We've got microphones. So we do encourage you to think about questions you may want to ask on any of these topics that Elder Bednar will cover uh, today. After the q and I'll uh, invite Elder Bednar to just make any concluding remarks that he may want to make. And after those remarks, uh, Elder, or not Elder, excuse me, Brother David Nielsen will offer the closing uh, prayer. So with that, Elder Bednar, I think we'll go ahead and, and get started. The first question that, uh, that we thought about, kind of a, a, a general one, but I think a very important one. And the question is, why is it so important that leaders develop others? In our conversation, I remember you saying, that was one of your two, if I remember right, most important things that leaders do to develop others. Um, why is that so important? And in your experience, how is that best done? Great. Um, I think leadership includes both what you do and what you leave. What you do is necessary but not sufficient. It's not enough. The most important thing is what you leave when you're not there. And the most important thing you can leave are people who have increased in capacity and confidence. That originates, in my experience, when I was called the first time to be a stake president. The call was extended by Elder H. Burke Peterson. It was in uh, the mid-1980s. And I will never forget the first thing he said after he extended the call. He looked at me and he said... Now, your greatest responsibility is to begin right now training a multitude of men who can replace you. Now, I had just been called. I mean, I'm in shell shock at being the stake president, and he's telling me to think down the road about there need to be a large number of men whom the Lord could call on to be the next president of this state. And that influenced, I think, almost everything I thought and did during eight years of serving as a stake president. So you would think and seek inspiration in relation to how will this help these people to develop. Frankly, his teachings to me helped me focus less on managing programs and the organization and be a lot more focused on people and ministering and helping people to learn and to grow. This had its manifestation again at BYU-Idaho. Let me describe something that will sound bizarre, but is just way cool. At BYU-Idaho, you do not have student body officers who serve for an academic year. At BYU-Idaho, there's a track system of admission. And what that means is some students attend school in the summer And in the fall, their semester out of school is in the winter. In Rexburg, Idaho, if you can't figure out that's the best time to be there, then you got a problem. (laughs) Some students go in the traditional cycle of the fall and the spring, and some students attend in the spring and the summer. In each of the semesters, there's a new slate of student body officers. And the first time we ever talked with them, we simply said... What you do in the semester that you're here is nice, but that's not the issue. What can you do during your term of service that will prepare the way for the next people who follow you to be successful? And the measure of that will be if the incoming student body officers who follow you 
have to begin at the same place where you begin and you failed? How will you help them know what you know? How will you help them learn what you have learned so that they can begin where you leave off instead of going back to ground zero? To me, that's all about developing people. So it's in part what you do as a leader, that's necessary. But the greater contribution, the greater value added is in helping people gain capacity and confidence because they're going to be there long after you are. Great. You know, better, in my experience, if I can just kind of pursue that just for a minute, in my experience, it is so easy to get so caught up in the day-to-day things that are pressing us and that we need to do that it's hard to remember that. I mean, what you said seems... Seems simple, but not always easy. Any just thoughts on, on what a leader can do to make sure that we carve out time to actually do that, though? Well, it's a, it's a false premise to think you don't have time. Uh, all of us are less effective at delegating, for example, than we should be. Because we don't want to take the risk that someone will do it wrong. And it will take me so much time to train someone else, I can just do it better myself. That's only true one or two times. The second, the third, the fourth, the fifth time that you are doing it yourself, the aggregate time is now greater and probably is not what it would have taken to teach and help someone else gain the necessary skill so that you don't have to be the only one to do it. So I guess there's some self-interest in that. There's a little bit of uh, selfishness in that the more people you have with increasing capacity, you can be off into other things that you probably ought to be doing that you can't do because you're the only one who can do all these other tasks. That's really helpful. So, so <laughs> ought not think about it as an extra chore, but frankly, rather, as we do that, th- that may be the only way that we can expand what we can accomplish and that produce. That is your chore. That is the chore. Yeah. And you're diverted from your primary chore because of all these other things that need to be done. Uh, Just a silly illustration. Sister Bednar and I have three sons. Uh, I like to have a yard that looks nice. And so I was fairly meticulous about how you mow the lawn. And I was uh, famous in our neighborhood for the, the neatness of the trimming around the lawn. I mean, people would come in our neighborhood. How do you do that? They would come and ask for lessons about how to do this. So one day I began teaching one of our sons how to do this, and he just totally messed it up. Now, I know none of you have done this, but my first instinct was to take the weed eater away from him because I didn't want him to mess it up. And there came one of these kind of amazing moments where you go, so let me make sure I understand this. Not messing up the trimming around the lawn is more important than helping your son learn this lesson. So he just totally obliterated the edges of the lawn. And you know what? It grows back, and it's not a big deal. And he did it the second time, and he was as bad, if not worse, than the first time. And each time, it was horrible, but it got a little better. And the long-run outcome was, I didn't trim the lawn anymore. And he did it as well as I did. You have to take some inevitable hits on the front end. And you're invested in that, and it's kind of painful. And what was really cool is that when he learned how to do it, his brother wanted to learn how to do it, which I never could have pulled off. 
Can, can, we, coin, can we coin now the, the lawn trimming theory of management? <laughs> Whatever works. As long as they don't breathe each other's air, it works. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thank you. Second question. In, in that same conversation where you said this was one of your first uh, priorities, this one is really the second thing that uh, Elder Bednar had raised. Um, I've heard you talk about the need to act and not be acted upon. What's that mean to you, and how do we apply this in this really unique organization? And, and one of the things that I've observed here is that we understand the principle of acting and not being acted upon, and we understand the principle of obedience, and, and, and we seem to interpret that as though that means follow somebody else. And for some of us, it seems a bit of a dilemma. I mean, which do we do? Do we be obedient to what we're told to do, or do we act and not be acted upon? And it, it, sometimes it's hard to sort that out. Okay. This will almost sound like a a general conference talk. But in the division of all of God's creations, there are things to act and things to be acted upon. By virtue of the fact that we are sons and daughters of God and we have been blessed with moral agency, with that agency we are to act primarily and not merely be acted upon. This book... Of scripture is an object. It does not move unless I or something else moves it. It has no capacity or power of independent action, which is what agency is. You and I can move ourselves. I just don't know an undergirding principle more important than acting and not just sitting and waiting to be acted upon. In 2000, President Hinckley announced that uh, BYU-Idaho, or Rick's College, would become BYU-Idaho. Now, brothers and sisters, I didn't have much more advanced notice of that than you did. And when he called to tell me that that was going to take place, I said, President, what would you have me do? And he said, make it happen. And that was it. There were a series of guidelines from the board that we followed, but we had basic parameters and the admonition to act. Well, that day we had a series of press conferences. First, we met with uh, the faculty and all of the, the campus employees. And I'm sure I said some things that were very disheartening to them. I said, I have absolutely no idea how we're going to do this. And you could just see the looks in the faces of these people. Oh, this is a great president we've got. (laughs) And I said, but I can tell you one thing. If you sit in your office, if you work in your area, waiting for the president's council to tell you how this is going to work, then it won't work. And we talked about being agents and having the capacity to act and not merely be acted upon. And I simply then extended this invitation to the entire campus community. Now, as we go forward, as we try to figure out these principles, as we take a look at what's going to have to be done, how what occurs in this area will influence what happens here and here and here, you have as much responsibility in your area of work as I have in mine. And in fact, if some things are going to have to be adjusted in the physical plant, then most of that 
will be identified and recommended by people in the physical plant or in academics or in the non-academic support areas. You do not have permission to just sit there and wait for somebody to tell you how this is going to roll out. You have as much right to receive inspiration in relation to what happens in the physical plant as we do for the entire institution. And we'll put in place the process and the pattern for being able to surface and counsel together about those issues. And ultimately, the President's Council and the Board of Trustees will say yes or no. But this is going to take everybody in that pattern acting and not just sitting and waiting to be acted upon. It is my belief that the truthfulness of that principle made possible a a transition of Ricks College from a two-year institution with 124 academic programs to a baccalaureate degree-granting institution in four years with 51 accredited degrees. That occurred because of that principle and because those people, I think, believed that they had a responsibility to act and not just be acted upon. Can I tell just one more quick story? Now, the stake over which I presided was huge. It was, what, 260 miles north and south, about 240 miles east and west, 17 units. Nine of them were little bitty branches. The median income in the stake was $8,500. Got that? 85% of the households in the stake had no Melchizedek priesthood in the home. And they were primarily first-generation members of the church. Nobody in the stake was unemployed. 100% of the members of the stake were underemployed. This uh, member of the 70 calls and says, I'm coming through this area. I'd like to have the members gather on a Wednesday night so that there's some things that we'd like to teach them. Now, again, I tried to do this with great deference and respect, but I said... It's not a good idea to invite these people on a Wednesday night. Some of them will have to drive four and five hours. They can't afford the gas money. They'll have to take off work on a Wednesday afternoon to be there. And if we invite them, they'll come. And they'll get home late or they'll drive so late into the night it will be dangerous. Or they'll have to get a motel room, which they can't afford. I said, whatever you want, we'll bring the state presidency, the high council, Whatever, but it's not a good idea to invite all of the members from all over the stake. And he was not pleased with me when I told him that. And I don't want to sound anything other than uh, appropriate, but that's, that was the right thing to say. And I wasn't fearful of putting out on the table for him that information because we're to act and not just be acted upon. And even though he wasn't happy with it, when he got done listening, he said, I can see that that's the right thing to do. So we'll make some, we'll we'll adjust the schedule. Well, I think that's the example. Yeah, you want to be strictly obedient. If he had said, look, I'm telling you we're going to do it. Okay, we'll do it. But I felt an obligation to put that out on the table so it would influence his judgment. That's great. And I can't help but think of how many people are coming to us as leaders asking for something maybe a little out of the box, as you said, and, and what's our response to them? Are, you know, what message are we giving them? Are we encouraging them to strike this balance well, or are we encouraging them to, to, to never do that again? 
See, I think all of this is also related to the Lord's type of leadership. Uh, You know, in the secular world, leadership is all about uh, achieving strategic goals and being aggressive and assertive and having charisma and all that stuff you read in all the management books. But that's not the Lord's pattern. And we ought to benefit from secular stuff about leadership, but we also ought to discount a fair amount of it because that's not how it works here. Just think about any responsibility you've ever had as a leader in the church. Were you well prepared before you were called? No. Did you know what you were doing when you were called? No. So the Lord by inspiration through those who are in authority, calls us to do things that we've never done, that we're not prepared to do, and that we struggle on the front end, especially learning what we're to do. Well, my phrasing for that is, what happens as soon as you begin to have any idea what you're doing and gain any measure of confidence, you're released and you're clueless again in some new responsibility. And there's a, there's a reason for that. As long as we're clueless, we're dependent upon heaven. As soon as we think we know what we're doing, then we tend to rely more on the arm of the flesh. In the church, every single one of us has been in a position where heaven took a chance on us. We didn't know what to do. We certainly were not experienced. We were worthy and willing, but heaven took a chance. Truthfully, when we then are the one in the chair to receive inspiration for someone else, aren't we less willing to take a chance than other people? We want folks who have the requisite skill and capacity, and we want everything to run smooth, and so we use the same 10 people who at some point in time were given an opportunity, developed the skill and the capacity and the competence, and we want to look good, so we just keep moving them around in the different auxiliaries. The great enjoyment comes when someone who's really clueless Gains confidence and capacity. That's fun. Let, let me add a two-minute story, if I can, sure. and, and I'll do this in a public forum, ready to take uh, counsel from a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles that I may have uh, absolutely been uh, out of line here. But it, it reminds me this question of, oh, I'd been here about six months or so, and I remember being in a meeting with the bishopric, and on the particular issue, doesn't matter what it was, but I had a different view then did the bishopric, and, and I expressed it, and we had this really, what I thought, enjoyable conversation going back and forth. And, and after the meeting, uh, a good brother who was there, not a member of the bishopric, but took me aside and said, uh, good brother Ralph, you know, if you want to stay here uh, longer than the six months that you've been, you know, you, you just can't do that with the brethren. Um, and I said, is that right? And I said, well, why is that? And he said, because when you do that, it shows a sense of disloyalty to the brethren. And I paused for a minute. I said, that's interesting, because from my view, I show my highest loyalty by giving them my best advice and, and helping as best I can. And he and I viewed that differently. But I, but I thought about it, and, and I went in, in my next meeting with the First Presidency, and I said, brethren, coach me, counsel me as a, as a newbie here. And, uh, and I said, uh, told him that story, and I said, I said to President Hinckley and the First Presidency, I said, brethren, I make three assumptions. The first is that at every time we're together, you expect me, you want me to give my best personal advice uh, and, and professional advice. Second assumption, that sometimes we will agree and sometimes we won't. Third assumption is that that's okay. And I said, then the assumption I would hope you would make about Ralph Christensen is at any point in the conversation when you want to say, good brother Ralph, thank you for your input, but you're off base, we want to do this, I'm on board. 
And it was fun. President Hinckley looked me in the eye and he said, well, Ralph, isn't that how we all do it? And I paused for a minute and I thought, not really. Not really. really. (laughs) (laughs) So now I'll take your counsel. (laughs) I just, I have no counsel. I just want to read a scripture. This is one we all know. But I think there are elements in this that you obtain new eyes to see and new ears to hear. Because I think this lays out principles related to acting and not being acted upon. Wherefore, now let every man learn his duty and to act in the office in which he is appointed in all diligence. So there is to learn the duty, learn the parameters, learn the guidelines, act in the office in all diligence, which speaks not only of effort but also of competence. The next verse, he that is slothful shall not be counted worthy to stand. And he that learns not his duty and shows himself not approved shall not be counted worthy to stand. I just think there are vital elements. This is a part of the Lord's pattern for leading and learning and acting and not being acted upon. Great. Thank you. Next question. The next one has to do with performance, and again, this is one that I think we as leaders often struggle with. I mean, what, what kind of performance can we expect, and, and particularly at the church? I mean, can you expect top performance? Can you expect the best performance that there, that there possibly could, uh, could be? And if so, how do we manage in the church setting for that top performance, and particularly as we try to balance great performance with principles of justice, accountability, uh, love, mercy, compassion, all of that. How do we manage for performance, Hillary Bidner? The answer to the question is yes. <laughs> we, uh, of course we would expect that kind of performance. This is the Lord's church. We are not running an organization. This is the kingdom of God on the earth. And we are preparing for the second coming of the Savior. If we really understand that, the patterns and the processes that we put in place now are imperative in relation to the second coming. So I don't think we're just putting in time, punching the clock, and getting a paycheck. This is the most important work that can be done anywhere, anytime on the planet. Now, in terms of how do you manage for that... I don't, I wouldn't be prescriptive, but there have to be very clear understandings, expectations and understandings about what is the overarching mission. Let me give an example. In Jacob, there's a verse that says, For because of faith and great anxiety, it truly had been made manifest unto us concerning our people what things should happen unto them. I'm going to tell another silly story that illustrates that verse. One of our sons was an assistant in the priest's quorum. And he said, uh, Dad, uh, we're having an activity with the laurels in two weeks. Do you have any ideas about what we can do? And I said, Mike, get your scriptures and read Jacob chapter 1 verse 5, which is the verse I just quoted. We were riding in the car, going someplace, and had our scripture, so he whips this out and reads it. 
For because of faith and great anxiety, it truly had been made manifest unto us concerning our people what things should happen unto them. I said, Mike, does that help you? He said, Dad, I love reading scriptures with you. Now, would you pay attention and answer my question? (laughs) My question is, we're having a priest and laurels activity. I'm in charge of helping to pull this off. Have you got any ideas? I said, Mike, read the verse again. So he read the verse again. I said, did it help you this time? Now, he got a little bolder. He says, earth to dad. (laughs) Dad, watch my lips. Can you help me with the priests and laurels activity? I said, Mike, read it again. So he read it again. I said, Mike, in this verse it says, for because of faith and great anxiety. Anxiety in this verse doesn't mean stress. It means anxious regarding concern. Now, have you thought about this before asking me? Uh, No. Okay, what are the things that should happen to the priests and the laurels as a result of this activity? Well, I don't really know. Then I can't help you. Why don't you be prayerful and consider what things should happen unto the priests and the laurels as a result of this activity? And then come back after you've thought about it and we'll talk. Well, a day or two later, he came back. Dad, it would be so cool if the priests and the laurels could understand this about the work of proclaiming the gospel. I said, you're right. Now, if you wanted priests and laurels to learn and understand that, what would you have them do? And he started coming out with these great ideas of stuff to do. I said, Mike, you got your answer. And you got your own answer. I don't think most of us are very good at helping people understand the outcome, the things that should happen in the department, in the organization, and more specifically, unto the people. Now, again, I'll slop over between secular and and spiritual worlds. In the church, uh, we have auxiliaries to the priesthood. Auxiliaries are some of the greatest resource, the most underutilized resource in the church to accomplish the work that really matters because they have no idea the priesthood work that the brethren want done. They don't get it from us as clearly as they should. And so they, because they are so conscientious and anxiously engaged... They will try to figure out and do lots of things. But if they were just lined up with the work that needs to be done under the direction of the keys of the priesthood, get out of the way. I set apart a brand new stake president. And when I did, I told him, you will be called president by all the people in the stake, and that's appropriate. But I never want you to hear the word president. Every single time someone calls you president, I want you to think of Alma. You read Mosiah 23 through Alma 40, and you become Alma. You're not running an organization here. You are Alma. And as you begin to organize this new stake... 
I don't want you to just fill up the boxes. Don't just call a new stake relief society president. Don't just call a new young women's president. You get real clear about the priesthood work. You need help from the Relief Society and the young women and others. And you be real clear about what that is. And you can't be clear if you haven't figured it out for yourself. In fact, don't you call any stake auxiliaries until you, President Alma, are clear about the priesthood work you need help with. I said, by the way, you only have one task, Alma. Shepherd people to the temple. That's it. You're Alma... Shepherd people to the temple. That's it. When they finally got to the point that they called a stake Relief Society president, he said, Dear Sister Relief Society president, we only have one work, and that is to shepherd people to the temple. Everything that you do has that as the overarching objective. Sister Young Women's president, we only have one thing that we do here. We just shepherd people to the temple. In the area where this stake was organized, there were already four stakes. This is the fifth. It's been a couple of years. There are more worthy members of the church in the temple worshiping from that one stake than the other four combined. Because the auxiliaries to the priesthood really understand what Alma wants help with. And they all just get in and they go. So you can really let people act in the office to which they have been called. And I don't think that's just a church thing. I think that's an organizational thing as well. If they understand, where are we going? And that takes a lot of time. And that takes leaders who are clear about the ultimate objective and the target and the mission. And you spend a lot of time helping people to see and understand that. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Well, where there is no vision, stuff doesn't get done very well. But in an organization like this, with people of faith and testimony and goodwill, if they can see where we want to go and you, you, you equip them with correct principles and the confidence that within those principles and parameters, you have a responsibility to act and not be acted upon, get out of the way. Very helpful. I don't know if that responded to the question, but... That's great. That's great. As, as you were talking, a scripture came to mind Reminded of, of Enos, who said that he had been taught by his father in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Uh, in general, my, my sense is that we are pretty good at nurturing. I'd be interested in any of your thoughts on, on the, the appropriate ways to, to, you know, to give admonition. I mean, that's the hard part okay. of, of, of this question of performance. Two things come to my mind. Number one, uh, a principle that is hard to hear but resonates is true. When we fail to give needed correction or counsel, it's because we're thinking of ourselves. We normally think, well, you know, I don't want to hurt this person's feelings. No, that's really not true. You just want to be liked. And the reason I'm not going to tell you what really needs to be said is because I don't want to be viewed negatively or fall into disfavor. It is far more loving to appropriately provide correction and counsel than it is to duck the issue. I had a second one. I should have jotted it down. Oh, the other one is, so that to me, the admonition, well, I guess the best example of that is our council in the, in the 12th and with the first presidency. Nobody cares about getting credit. Nobody cares about being right and getting credit for being right. People just care about getting it right the way the Lord wants it. And therefore, 
you can really say what needs to be said and you don't always do it in the best way or the, the smoothest way but nobody's looking for reasons to be offended or to take umbrage you just okay fine let's get to this Elder Dallin Oaks is one of the finest minds on the planet can you imagine what it's like when he's going someplace in the world to give a lecture to a law society about Mormonism 101 and he says David I really need your help would you read this for me and you go in and say, now, Elder Oaks, I, I wonder if with those not of our faith, I wonder if this language would make sense. Now, you typically would think, well, you know, I kind of knew what I was saying there. I had that for a reason. Elder Oaks' response is to go, do you know what? That language with those not of our faith is clearly better than what I had thought. Thank you. And then there may be another one where he says, well, David, I can see where you're coming from, but I don't think that makes that point as forcefully as I need to the way I've said it here. And you, you just don't worry about anything except getting it right. So I think that's a part of the, the admonition. The second part is individual and spiritual, and that is if you haven't been rebuked by the Holy Ghost in your personal prayers lately, I'd recommend you improve the meaningfulness of your personal prayers. To be rebuked is to be corrected and counseled. Now, have you ever done something at work that you knew you shouldn't do? Have you ever, with your spouse, pushed a button on your spouse that you knew would cause them to go off? You understand what I'm saying? Don't you know your spouse so well and your spouse can push your buttons and you can push hers? Am I making any sense? Or are you just, are you going... Oh, he can't be talking about this, this candidly. And have you ever pushed one of those buttons with a colleague at work or with a spouse or a child or somebody else, and you did it intentionally, and then after the fact, you try to come up with all kinds of silly reasons why it was justified to do that, and you're really lying to yourself? When you pray, doesn't the Holy Ghost say to you, you are really a piece of work? Who do you think you're kidding when you did that intentionally, you did it with an intent that was not good, and then you try to construct this whole rationalization for why it made sense. The Holy Ghost will help you see things as they really are, and you can't hide from it. So, if we are praying with an open heart, with real intent, and with faith in Christ... The Holy Ghost will help us see ourselves as we really are. And there are lots of instances where that's not pleasant. And that applies at work as much as it does in our families, as much as it does in our responsibilities in the church. So those are the two things that come to my mind in terms of nurture and admonition. Very helpful. Thank you. Uh, your comments about the, the workings of the Quorum of the Twelve actually lead very nicely to the, to the next question. Many of the brethren in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles have spoken about, you know, how they bring different backgrounds, uh, different points of view, and, and, and really divergent views on, on a variety of topics, and, and yet they always speak about the sense of unity and love that exists. Uh, I, I've heard many, you know, employees at the church talk about how difficult it is to, to really engage in a, in a conversation where there's difference of opinion and disagreement. In fact, I've heard many say, you really have to stop short of that because contention is of the devil and we don't want to let that into our conversation. Um, and, and yet with 
the brethren, as I listen to them, I mean, they talk about not contention, but they talk about a tension of views sure. that they find very helpful. Would you comment on that, please? Yeah, without uh, getting too academic about this, any communication operates at two levels. There's content, stuff that you're trying to convey orally or in writing, and then there's also a relationship component in what's going on. And I think what you're expressing is the fact that if you're going to disagree, it's about the content, the substance of what's being addressed. And you can do that without negatively impacting the nature of the relationship that grows out of how you're communicating with each other. So in the meetings of the First Presidency and the Twelve, they are very forceful. And these are people with very different backgrounds, very extensive experiences professionally in the church and otherwise. And so no one is reluctant. You are there to give voice to issues so that it can ultimately reflect the Lord's will. And out of that counseling, and yeah, but it should most effectively work this way. I agree with that, but not in every circumstance. What about a situation like this? As you do that, in a spirit not of getting defensive or I wanted my proposal to succeed, it's just about getting it right without getting credit. For example, do any of you have any idea, don't answer this, but do you have any idea who had the primary role in writing the proclamation? I mean, that didn't come out of a committee of 15. That process requires that at least some people would take a lead in getting some things on paper so everyone can read and react and contribute, right? I don't think anybody in here can identify any individual's fingerprints on the proclamation, and you never will. That's because nobody cares about getting credit. It's just getting it right. So that's the nature of it. It is uh, to the point. It is concise. It is pointed, but not in a contentious or relationship way. All done for the glory and honor of heaven and the building of the kingdom on earth. That's what those interactions are like. And you're there with the first president. You've seen that in the HR committee. Sure. That's helpful. Very helpful. Final question, and then we'll open it up to uh, questions that you may have in the, in the audience. Um, in the, uh, what we call the leadership pattern that I showed, we talk about sort of two dimensions of, of things. One very spiritual-based dimension, then the other is really a kind of a practices and skills-based. I'd just be interested in your, uh, any comments you have about the balance between what we bring you know, from a spiritual point of view, balanced with what we bring from just whatever our profession is. And, 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 and in terms of leaders, how we ought to balance those. You may be surprised at the conciseness of my answer. I'll quote Elder Richard L. Evans. He was speaking to a group of young people. And he said, it's good to be faithful, but it's better to be faithful and competent. <laughs> That's, <great. laughs> That's a great answer. You can't use spirituality as an excuse to slack off on necessary competencies. In fact, because of what we know spiritually, then there should be a greater yearning for developing whatever competencies are necessary so that I can act in the office to which I have been appointed and learn my duty. 
I love it. That's that's very clear. Uh, and as we because as we put that together from the direction from you and others, uh, you know that that is so much how, how we felt is the need to have both. And uh, and I think for us as leaders to be working on our spiritual depth and to be working on our professional depth, we need both. I guess I want to add one additional element to this. I'm not sure it's it's right on this question, but it's just a perspective. I've spent my entire professional life uh, not in the church organization. It was only when we were invited to go to Rexburg that I became an employee of the church. And when I was ordained a 70 in 1997, Susan and I sat outside of Elder Eyring's office. And I just said, what would it be like to work in a place like this? What would it be like to know that all these people, you know, believe what you believe, they're, they're temple recommend holders? I couldn't imagine what that would be like. Because where I was in my responsibilities, when I would teach a class in the late springtime, my eyeballs could never look above the chalkboard. You know what I mean? If I have a class of 60 students, I mean, I just have to look at this level because you could not let your eyes go down. So to walk into that office building was just quite an experience. And then when we went to Rexburg, one of the very first things we did was have a temple session with all of the faculty. I'll never forget driving to the Idaho Falls Temple with Susan. I said, can we really do this? Is it okay to you know, have 500 faculty members and we're all going to be in the temple together? This is so liberating to be in the employ of an organization where you have the ultimate in freedom. To take what we know about the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, true principles, and apply them in what seems like secular kind of work but it's the kingdom of God that is the most liberating thing I know of because you have access to all truth and you don't have to hold back you can use the language of the scriptures anything that I may have ever known or pursued in my career as a management professor and consultant came from the gospel from the scriptures and from experiences as a priesthood leader When you take that one verse, let every man and woman learn his or her duty and act in the office. And if you're faithful, if you're slothful, I mean, it just doesn't get any clearer or more profound than that. And we have access to all of that. So this whole notion of, you know, spiritual incompetence, if I understand this, this is the dispensation of the fullness of times which has as its focus gathering together all things in one in Christ. So those are not separate. Those are all things gathered together in one in Christ. And you've got to be both faithful and competent. Thank you. You ready for some questions? Sure. Except right. I have to make a comment. Please. See, the culture here is that everyone will just sit there because you know we can't really ask questions. Yeah, you really can, and it would be great if we don't waste time while you get over that. <laughs> that was clear. Thank you. <laughs> so my understanding is that we've got four microphones here and then a couple up there as well. 
please, in fact, why don't you stand up if you've got a question and we'll get the microphones to you. Who, who would like to take the first question? I told you. <laughs> you, you were right. Here we go. What have you learned about motivating people beyond their perceived capabilities? What they feel that they can accomplish and what they feel that they can uh, deliver. I'm, in, I'm curious in your best motivational techniques. Okay. Uh, I'll only do a little background so that I might have a small amount of credibility on this. In my former life, as a uh, professor of business management, I wrote books about motivation and stuff like that. It's all bogus. There's no such thing as motivation. Motivation. You got their attention. The word motivation stems from a Latin root, movere. And what that means is to make move. Well, nothing outside of you makes you move for any sustained period of time. The only thing that will cause you to move is what's inside. So think of President Benson. The, the Lord works from the inside out. The world works from the outside in. What the world's talking about from the outside in is incentives and punishments and rewards and all that stuff. That's the typical motivation stuff. But the only motivation that matters comes from within and is a function of seeing what we really are, the difference between what we really are and what we ought to be, spiritually or at work or anything else, and recognizing that in the strength of the Lord, through His grace and the enabling power of His atonement, what looks so overwhelming that I'll never get there, I don't have to do alone, and that He will help me close the gap. And that applies at work as much as it applies at home and at church. That's why the spirituality and the capability issue, if we, if we really are coming unto Christ, then our capacity is being enlarged through His atonement to do things that on our own we could never do. So that to me, that's the, the mighty change of heart. It's the change from within that comes through the atonement and the workings of the Spirit, that's how I would describe that inner stuff rather than motivation techniques or tricks. The, to the person, I didn't see who, who had the question. I didn't see where you were. Does that miss your question or does that respond to it? Okay. Anything that you want to follow up with given what was just said? Thank you for your question. Thank you. Who's next? I'm somewhat hesitant to uh, ask this question given our discussion about acting and acting and being acted upon, but I'm going to take the risk anyway. <laughs> okay, we've talked about and been presented an outstanding leadership pattern. What should be our role as managers in addressing this concept with our people, number one? And number two, Will there be changes to the normal review process that we've just completed for next year? Why don't you address the second part? I will. 
Go ahead. Give me to start with that yeah. one. Yeah, let, me, let, me, let me start with the second one in terms of will there be changes to the uh, normal review process. Frankly, in, in our view, the, re, the review process, uh, we don't envision big changes to that, with the exception of, you know, I, I would encourage us as leaders to use this, uh, th- this, this pattern in that. In fact, I'll tell you what I've just done in mine, okay? I've taken this, and with those that report to me, uh, I've got two things I look at. I take a look at, did you do what you said you were going to do last year? And we've talked about it several times during the course of the year, but we have a conversation about what they said they were going to do. And then the second thing is I've actually taken each of these elements, the six and then the other three, so, so nine, and I'm having a conversation with people that report to me, and we're talking about these nine elements. Uh, and I'm, frankly, I'm doing that just to kind of experiment, and so far I like it. And so I suspect that we will, in a more formal way, move that into the process. The process will look a lot like it is, because the process actually isn't about papers and forms. The process is, do we get clear on our roles and responsibilities, uh, and then do we talk with one another and, and, in an ongoing way during the year, do we talk about how we're doing? Uh, the, the thing at the, at the end of the year, frankly, I think we make too big a deal of that. It's important, but hopefully we've been having conversations through the course of the year. I think the only thing that I would envision changing is, is having practiced with this this year, personally, I really liked it. I think that we will probably try to formalize that a bit to encourage you to talk with your employees both about what they did and, and your sense with them about where they are against these nine elements of this pattern. Let me suggest a principle that may be useful in thinking about uh, you know, going forward. How do we use this and what do we do? The role of a teacher is not to talk. The role of a teacher is to invite learners to act so that they can learn for themselves. And they need to act in accordance with correct principles. So if I were in your shoes, I think I would be asking the question, what kinds of experiences would best help people learn this leadership pattern? And I would really seek inspiration in relation to that. Now, let me disclose just a bias or a prejudice, I guess. I think... We talk too much because we believe talking and telling is teaching, and it's not. To teach, you first have to observe and listen so that you can discern and then know what to say. So in a rollout of something like this, we typically say, okay, you know, here are the nine points and so on and so forth. I'd think about other kinds of ways. Of course, there's explication of where did this come from and what are the basic elements, but I'd have far less of that and far more of, for example, take this pattern and come back to a department meeting or some other setting prepared to talk about the one or two key things that you learned going through this leadership pattern. And not only what did you learn, but based on what you learn, what is an implication for you for how you do your work? The very process of people prayerfully seeking inspiration to learn and to improve, they will be taught things by the Holy Ghost that no lecture is ever going to dispense. So I guess a guideline would be help facilitate the learning of the people who will be influenced by this 
Don't just give them a lecture about it. Help me know if that's responsive to your question. Did that help? Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. You know, if I might, just uh, to reinforce, I think most of you got uh, something that looks like this as you came in. Flip it over on the other side, and, and to echo what Elder Bednar just said, we've encouraged us all to kind of ponder three questions. Uh, one, specific to this session, what were the main things I learned from Elder Bednar? And two, this might be something you do alone and or with your group of employees, to just or together as a group of managers. But then the next two questions, what is the Spirit teaching me that I need to do in order to become a better leader? We will probably learn, frankly, as good as this session might have been, that's where we'll learn. You know, if we go to the Lord and ask that the Spirit teach us what I need to do to be a better leader. The third question, what did the Spirit teach me that I need to go back and teach my team in the way that Elder Bednar just discussed? So I invite you to kind of think about those three questions. As, Can I as add one additional Please. thing? This is a, kind of a related principle. And that is uh, the very pattern of counseling together. As we take, for example... The leadership pattern, we accept an invitation to take it, to prayerfully ponder, to seek inspiration, to respond to a question or two. And then as we counsel together, I think so many times we think that revelation comes through one individual and that's the way it is. Well, a bishop is not going to be the only person who receives revelation pertaining to the ward. Now listen carefully so this is not misunderstood. He's the only one who can affirm the right direction in the authority of the keys. But the whole point of a council in the ward is to capitalize from the experience of the sister who's the Young Women President and the sister who's the Relief Society President and the brother who's the Sunday School President, each of whom may contribute an element of the overarching inspiration, which then has to be aggregated and affirmed by the one who holds the keys. But so often in the church, we say, well, we've got to wait for the bishop to receive the revelation to tell us what to do. No. Everyone in the council has the responsibility to act and not just sit and wait to be acted upon and contribute to that revelatory process. That same thing applies here. And that keeps people from going to extremes either in a spiritual or in a secular way. There's a safeguard in that council process and pattern that's very, very important. Thank you. Next question. So the culture is a pretty insular culture. We think differently, we dress differently, we speak differently, and so much of that is about us trying to do the Lord's work and build the kingdom, not build the world. So we want to eschew the world. And yet... The Lord's put a lot of truth and a lot of good things out in the world. So as a leader, uh, when you think about tolerating diversity, going all the way to maybe valuing diversity, how can I, in this insular culture, see the good that's in the world and help that build the kingdom instead of eschew the uh, everything that's in the world and kind of throw the baby out of the cabinet? Well, the thought that comes to my mind is prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. Um, I think we need to be looking broadly, reading broadly. Uh, Some of us have regular opportunities to travel broadly. Um, And from that, you see things that can be brought to bear 
in building the Lord's kingdom. If I could suggest one other lesson just in my own life. There's a great lesson from the Motorola Corporation. If you go back and look at their history, in the early 1900s, they were faced with some very important decisions about the nature of the business that they were going to do. And radio was relatively new. And they were trying to decide if they should get into the business of making home radios. Now, RCA already made home radios and dominated that market. And Motorola at that time made a very interesting decision. They said, why would we follow into the market after RCA and try to beat them at something that they've already established as a very strong market presence? So Motorola took a look around and they said, okay, if RCA is going that way, then we're going to look this way. Cars were brand new. And they said, hmm, nobody's putting radios in cars. So Motorola decided to build cars for radios instead of for homes. And that was the first real huge success for Motorola. And if you take a look across their corporate history, every time they had a key strategic decision to make, they looked at where the market was going, and then they'd turn around and do the opposite. I think what we ought to do is be looking and learning broadly and then also benefiting from the fact that if the world is doing this, then one of the places we ought to make sure we look is this way. For example, the church doesn't need to mimic YouTube. We don't need a Mormon YouTube. We need to learn from what YouTube can do, and then we need to use that kind of technology and that kind of an approach the Lord's way, not the world's way. So, I don't know if this rambling is responding to your question, but I don't think we ought to be afraid. All truth is a part of the gospel. There are some things where those who preside will say, nope, that's not going to fit here and we don't want that. That doesn't mean we wouldn't bring it in, talk about it, and get to the point where we could make that kind of decision and recommendation. I think, I think we have time for another couple of questions. There's one right up here. A sister. Yeah. Do we do we have a microphone? I don't think I need a microphone. Could you give us some help on a good working definition of humility to make sure you do have access to the Lord's help and not getting to feel like you know what you're doing? Let me try to repeat the question. It's a great question. Can you give us a good working definition of humility and how to apply that? Uh, in our lives as leaders. Elder Bedner? couple of things just to think about. Not too long ago, uh, I was visiting with President Packer, uh, and he made just a very interesting observation. He said, David, serving in this responsibility, the longer you serve, the less able you feel. If you think about a person who would serve as a stake president, for example, nine years, the first three years you're pretty much totally clueless. So you're safe because you're dependent on heaven. The second three years you might begin to see repeating kinds of challenges and cases. And you're still clueless, but you're not totally clueless, so you feel reasonably comfortable. The danger comes in the last three years that you might ever begin to think, I know what I'm doing. 
I would suggest, yeah, I know what I'm doing, is an absence of humility. Because even though this is the 93rd time you've seen a case like this, you have no idea what you're going to do. As long as that's your approach. New, new person, new circumstance. And yes, you've benefit, benefited from the previous 93, but this is a soul where they deserve your very best And you can't just apply everything from the past to this particular one. So the great danger comes after we have gained experience that we might begin to think we really know what we're doing. Number two, I think that the characteristic of the natural man and the natural woman is to take credit for things that go well and to assign blame to others when things do not go well. The woman thou gavest me. This was not my idea. I didn't want to do it. She made me do it. Now, as as we begin to experience the mighty change of heart, not through goal setting and not through personal discipline, but the natural consequences that begins to reverse. And when things go well, the first thing we do is drop to our knees to give credit to God. And when things do not go well, the first question we ask is, Lord, is it I? Now, that doesn't answer your question about an operational definition, but those begin to be, I think, some of the indicators that the mighty change of heart is having an impact. And I'm looking there to express gratitude, and I'm looking here to try to improve. Thank you. Great Great question. Question over here. I've uh, been pondering on act and be acted upon. And uh, I've learned from my own experience that fear is debilitating or paralyzing. How do you change or help change a culture? For example, the example you use with your, your trimming of your lawn. How do you allow your son or someone in your employ to make a few mistakes and still expect a high level of of uh, a high outcome? How, how do you balance? Sometimes the fear that people feel is what causes them to to stop acting or not to or to be acted upon. How do we how do we break through that? Let me. Uh, can, you've still got the mic, right? Can I ask you a question? Sure. Yeah, I'll tell you how it works for me and then see if it has any connection to what happens to you. I just have had a lot of opportunities to be thrust into positions that I had no idea what I was doing. And I just remember that when somebody else is in a position where they're going to make mistakes because they have no idea what they're doing. It really, to me, is just fascinating that you and I have been benefited through those experiences, and it is so hard for us to provide those same experiences for somebody else. That, to me, unlocks the door. Now, you're not going to be willing to do that on a project that has a huge budget and an immediate timeline. It's called line upon line, precept upon precept. So that's the whole point of my response to this one brother about think about learning experiences that people could have. Well, not all at once, 
The Lord's pattern for learning is incremental, line upon line, precept upon precept. Nephi had to go to Jerusalem three times to get the brass plates. Now, it didn't work out the first time. Well, he made a big mistake. He wasted time. Well, second time, didn't work. Was he out of tune? Was he not receiving impressions from the Spirit? My belief is he couldn't have gone the third time and made it and done it if he hadn't learned the lessons the first two times. The third time he goes not knowing beforehand the things that I should do. The first two times, I think he probably figured he knew what he was doing. And when he finally went not knowing beforehand, and he had the faith to go, then heaven opened doors and things began to happen. If we remember that we were once on the way to Jerusalem and had no idea what to do, then I think that helps us receive inspiration about how to help other people get on the way to Jerusalem and help them have the learning experiences just like Nephi did that ultimately made, him, it, made it possible for him to obtain the plates of brass. Does that miss or hit your question? Well, I think it's, it's right. I think sometimes the fear, and, and it's fear or, or however you want to look at it, a leader always wants to look good, and that's part of the natural man we've been talking about, is, is sometimes we... We close the door sure. to their progress because we're afraid of what's going to happen. And, and but see, the, this is the irony. What looks good to the people who oversee, who, wherever we are, is not what you do. It's what you leave behind in the people. And we do less of that because we're so busy impressing them with things that won't impress them. Thank you. Ben, I really see a great connection between this question and the last one on humility. You know, the, the premise in your, in your response was is to have the humility to recognize as a leader, I don't have the answers. I don't know where I'm going necessarily. And sometimes we feel a need to have this front as though we do. And, and, and those two questions connected really. As long are, as your answer to every question is not, I don't have a clue. <laughs> at some point, yeah, at some point. Yeah. <laughs> that is a problem. Now, that's, now I got my problem. <laughs> I think we have time for one more question. Please, right down here, and let's, let's bring a mic, microphone if we can. In leadership, we often hear the phrase, holding people accountable. That feels negative to me a little bit, and I wonder how we can include an environment or create an environment that helps people be accountable or want to take accountability rather than us feeling like we have to hold them accountable. Okay. Uh, I'm going to give another homey little illustration here. Uh, when I was at BYU-Idaho, I taught a religion class every semester. It was a Teachings of the Living Prophets class. And the basic approach was this. If you do everything in the syllabus and you do it extremely well with a high level of confidence the highest grade you can hope for is a C because you have met the requirements and that's C work if you want to get a B or an A then you have to identify what you're going to do above and beyond the minimum requirements of the syllabus to get an A or a B now you don't determine that alone you have to counsel with me about it if you're a student and we will come to an agreement of what it is that will get you a B and what it is that will get you an A. 
And then you have to execute that. And at the end of the semester, you will come and give an accounting of whether you did or did not do the things that you said you would do. So the final exam was a student coming to present a portfolio, not to just grease me, you know, and to try to, because I was, I think, reasonably discerning about now, wait a minute. If I were to bring five illustrations of what these students did to get an A, I don't think you'd believe it. You never could have imposed upon them an assignment that they would have done at the level at which they performed. It was unbelievable. I'll just give you one. One student took every single talk in general conference ever given by President Gordon B. Hinckley and identified the major themes and then prepared materials that would be used in a future family related to the themes as taught by President Hinckley. A second one. Now, do you have any idea how many? This is above and beyond regular assignments in the class. To read all those, to find them, to categorize them, to identify themes. It's unbelievable. Another student said, I'm going to take a look at the first messages, the transcript of first messages by all of the members of the 12 in the first presidency from such and such a time to identify both the reactions of these men when they are called and the themes across generations. Now you ought to read these. This was common when they did it themselves and they held themselves accountable. So you get real clear about what the expectations are. What is it we're trying to get to? How is it you think you best add to where we're going? Let's make sure we're in agreement on this. And you will come and render a judgment on how well you did. The Book of Mormon teaches that the judgment is a self-judgment. We're not going to have to have the Savior tell us where we go. We're going to know. Well, there's a principle in that that applies to what happens in an organization. But we're not very good at getting clear. All the stuff on the front end is hard. You've got to get that pretty clear about what the expectations are and the parameters. And then let them be anxiously engaged in a good cause and bring to pass much righteousness for the power is in them wherein they are agents unto themselves. Did that make any sense? Thank you very much. Great question. Thank you. Thank you so much for your questions. Uh, Elder Bednar, as we conclude, uh, I would just express for all of us our, our, both our appreciation but our love for you as, as a leader, as a servant, uh, as a colleague, and just having come to share uh, this with you. Thank you so much. And Thank you. we'd love to just any concluding comments you might make, and then I'll ask uh, Brother David Nielsen to close with prayer. Great. Well, I hope it's okay to have fun because I sure have had fun. It is called the plan of happiness and our faces and our personages ought to be evidence that we believe that. Uh, I just have two observations. Number one, there really has been a sweet spirit here. And that's because of you. And so I express my appreciation. Uh, I, I think I know a little bit that it's not customary for a member of the Quorum of the Twelve to say, well, what do you want to ask? And so for some of you to take the leap of faith to do that, I just want to commend you and thank you. And you have invited a very sweet, powerful, and strong spirit. 
Number two, I really love you. I just can't tell you what a joy it is in my life to get to work in that building with you. Because I've spent most of my life not in that building and certainly not working with people like you. So I thank you and I love you. As we conclude, I declare my apostolic witness of the living reality and the divinity of the Father and the Son. I witness that they live. I witness that this is the Savior's church. He stands at the head. He speaks. He directs its affairs. I don't just know that, and I don't just testify. I witness that is true. I invoke the blessing that as you ponder, as you pray about the impressions that have come to you today from the Holy Ghost, that your mind will be illuminated, you will receive inspiration, and you'll have joy in your heart, and you'll know what to do. In the sacred name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. You have been listening to an Enrichment Series presentation. If you would like to provide feedback regarding this podcast, send an email to enrichmentseries at ldschurch.org.